Hello everyone and welcome to Multidisciplinary Dialogue, Clinical Rounds, and Case Reviews with your host, Dr. Emil Harrison, who is the Program Director and Chair of the Internal Medicine Residency Program at the University of Central Florida and HCA, Florida West Hospital in Pensacola, Florida. Today's episode is titled, To Fib or Not to Fib? We'll discuss atrial fibrillation and related case presentations. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or consultant 360. Well, good morning, Dr. Harrison. How are you today? Good morning, Jessica. I'm doing very well. Thank you. How about yourself? Good. I'm doing great. Thank you. Our podcast today is on atrial fibrillation. We'll call it to fib or not to fib. That's today a good we're... one. <laughs> yeah, it's good, right? So we'll talk about what is atrial fibrillation, its causes, its presentation, physical exam findings, and its consequences before we go into more specific scenarios such as rate versus rhythm control to anticoagulate or not to anticoagulate which anticoagulant to use, to bridge or not to bridge, and lastly, the watchman's procedure. We also have six short case presentations and scenarios that we'd like to discuss with you, but are you ready to get started? Absolutely, Jessica. Well, let's start with this. What is atrial fibrillation and what are some of the causes? Sure. So atrial fibrillation, as you said, fibbing, is an irregular and often very rapid heart rate that can lead to blood clots in the heart, putting it very simply. Atrial fibrillation increases the risk of stroke, heart failure, and other heart-related complications. During atrial fibrillation, the heart's upper chambers are called the atria. They beat chaotically and irregularly, and they're out of sync with the lower chambers called the ventricles of the heart. For many people, atrial fibrillation may have no symptoms at all. However, atrial fibrillation may cause a fast, pounding heartbeat called palpitations, shortness of breath, and weakness. So some of the causes, Jessica, you know, it could be alcohol-related, especially binge drinking. It could be related to coronary artery disease, heart attacks or bypass surgeries, heart failure, or if somebody has an enlarged heart. And of course, it's also can be related to heart valve disease, most often the mitral valve, which sits between the left atrium and the left ventricle. Other etiologies would be hypertension, certain medications can do that, an overactive thyroid gland called hyperthyroidism can do that, pericarditis can do that, and of course, a sick sinus syndrome can also do that. So... Some of the symptoms, you know, as I said, a person might be absolutely asymptomatic, but sometimes you feel a pulse that, you know, feels rapid, it's racing, it's pounding, it's fluttering, it's irregular, or it's too slow. And sensation of heartbeat is very prominent in some people, they're called palpitations. And because of a lack of blood supply uh, to the brain, you know, one can have dizziness, lightheadedness, confusion, feeling faint, feeling fatigued, there's loss of ability to exercise, and people can get short of breath as well. What are some of the physical examination findings in atrial fibrillation? Sure. So an irregularly irregular pulse, also when one auscultates the heart, besides the irregularity, one may also detect a discrepancy between the heartbeats while auscultating 
and the pulse rate when palpating the radial artery. On auscultation, one might hear a varying intensity of S1. Besides, one wants to know if there are any murmurs, any gallops, or any pericardial rubs. The JVD might also be elevated, and one might hear crackles at the bases of the lungs, signs of heart failure. An EKG, which is a test that records the electrical activity of the heart, may show atrial fibrillation or flutter. If your abnormal heart rhythm comes and goes, you may need to wear a special monitor to diagnose the problem, depending on the frequency of the problem. The monitor records the heart's rhythm over a period. So for example, if you're having symptoms every one to two days, a Holter monitor would be the way to go. But you always start off with an EKG first. If your symptoms occur, let's say, every few days or in a couple of weeks, then a patch recorder would be the way to go. If your symptoms were to occur once every three to four weeks, then an event monitor would be the thing to go with. But if you have symptoms once in a while, let's say once or twice or thrice a year, then an implanted loop recorder for events occurring occasionally would be the way to go. So some of the tests to find heart disease may include an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound of the heart, tests to examine the blood supply of the heart muscle, which is a cardiac cath, or a CT angiogram. And of course, very importantly, tests to find the heart's electrical system called EPS or electrophysiological studies are also important. How does one treat a patient with atrial fibrillation? So the treatment depends uh, on the stability of the patient, Jessica. If the patient is hemodynamically unstable, one attempts to, to give electric shocks to the heart called cardioversion, along with drugs given intravenously to try and revert the abnormal rhythm back to normal. If the patient is hemodynamically stable, a couple of things to consider are, do you want to go with rate control or rhythm control, which means do you want to slow the ventricular rate or do you want to convert the atrial fibrillation to normal sinus rhythm? Having said that, some of the greatest risks with atrial fibrillation are systemic embolization, which can result in a stroke or complications secondary to an embolus elsewhere. It also can result in a high rate of heart failure, coronary events, and in certain cases, dementia is also associated with long-standing atrial fibrillation. You see, the problem with atrial fibrillation is atrial fibrillation begets atrial fibrillation, just as you mentioned, fibbing begets fibbing. What this means is that atrial fibrillation results in chronic remodeling structurally, electrically, and autonomically. So some of the terminologies uh, used with atrial fibrillation are, number one, subclinical atrial fibrillation, also termed as AHRE, or atrial high-rate events, where during cardiac monitoring in asymptomatic patients, atrial fibrillation is discovered happening for about five to six minutes at a rate of 175 beats per minute or more. These folks eventually do develop atrial fibrillation. The second one is paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, which lasts for less than seven days, whereas persistent atrial fibrillation, which lasts for more than seven days, or with treatment, becomes sinus rhythm. On the other hand, persistent atrial fibrillation is atrial fibrillation, which lasts for a year, 
And long-standing, persistent is anything more than that. There's a term called chronic atrial fibrillation, which is a term determined by the physician and the patient. Another categorization for atrial fibrillation is valvular and non-valvular atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation may be related to valvular heart disease, especially moderate to severe mitral stenosis. Non-valvular atrial fibrillation is related to either normal valves or anything else, considering the etiologies that I'd mentioned. While addressing atrial fibrillation and the complications which can result if untreated, the questions that come to one's mind are, should one be anticoagulated? Which anticoagulant should one use? Are all anticoagulants the same? Should one focus on rate control or rhythm control? And if it is rhythm control, should one use drugs or should one use radiofrequency ablation? You see, the problem with atrial fibrillation is that the atrium is in a tizzy and chaos, with the blood within being churned, producing clumps called clots, which can then travel to the brain or elsewhere systemically, causing neural or tissue ischemia, which can be devastating at times. Could you speak about the 48-hour rule with atrial fibrillation? Absolutely, Jessica. Since time does have relevance to atrial fibrillation, let us first address the 48-hour rule. If we are certain that the atrial fibrillation has been present for less than 48 hours, the patient does not need to be anticoagulated. One can go ahead and cardiovert the heart rhythm to normal sinus rhythm. Although, if one is uncertain with regards to the actual timing, getting a TEE, transesophageal echocardiogram, before proceeding with cardioversion is reasonable. The reason for this is the CHADS VASC less than two, and hence the risk for a stroke is zero to 0 0.4. Therefore, this is a class 2B recommendation to offer no anticoagulation after cardioversion. On the contrary, if the atrial fibrillation has been present for more than 48 hours, one must anticoagulate for three weeks prior to cardioverting, followed by at least four weeks of anticoagulation, with decisions on the length of anticoagulation beyond this be determined by doing a CHADVAS scoring. How does one balance the purpose of anticoagulation versus the chances of having a major bleed secondary to the anticoagulant? That's a great question, Jessica. Should one anticoagulate? That's a question. It depends on what is the risk of a person developing a clot and therefore treating it with anticoagulants versus what are the risks of the person having a major bleed, which again can be significantly detrimental. To address this, the CHADVAS score is used to determine the risk of clotting slash thrombosis, whereas the mnemonic HASPLED is used towards the chances of a person bleeding from being on anticoagulants. The risk of embolization or stroke secondary to atrial fibrillation uses the CHADS-2 VASC scoring. The CHADS-2, a clinical prediction rule formula for estimating the risk of stroke in patients with non-rheumatic atrial fibrillation, comprises of C- which is for congestive heart failure, H for hypertension, which means blood pressure greater than, greater than 140 over 90, A for age greater than 75, D for diabetes, and S for prior TIA or stroke. With age greater than 75 and a prior history of TIA or stroke, you get two points. 
while the others get one point each. By points directly, for example, six points, which is a maximum, relates to an 18.2% risk per year if no Coumadin is given, which is high risk, which, as opposed to having zero points, the risk is just 1.9% per year if no Coumadin is given. The other one, the CHADS-VASC score, where A and S, which is age and a history of stroke and TIA, get two points each again, which is similar, though the CHADS-VASC score has a maximum of 10, where again C stands for congestive heart failure, H, hypertension, A, capital A, age greater than 75, D for diabetes, S for stroke or TIA or systemic embolization, V for vascular disease, A, the small a for age between 65 to 74, and capital S and small c for the female sex. Again, one gets two points for age greater than 75 and for stroke or TIA or systemic embolization. The higher the risk, the higher the risk of thromboembolic phenomenon. And conversely, the smaller the score, the smaller is the risk. With zero points, the stroke slash systemic embolization risk was about 0.2 to 0.3% per year. A score of one for men and two for women is low to moderate risk, and one might consider antiplatelet or anticoagulation. A score of two or more in men and a score of three or more in women is moderate to high risk, and they should be on anticoagulants. This, of course, must be balanced with what are the risks of a major bleed while being on anticoagulants for which the mnemonic has bled, which calculates the risk of major bleed from zero to nine. The higher the number, the higher the chances of bleeding, where H stands for hypertension, a systolic blood pressure of more than 160, A for abnormal liver and or kidney functions, S for a history of stroke, B for major prior bleeding or predisposition to bleeding, L for a labile INR, E for elderly, which means the person greater than age 65, and D for drugs or alcohol. With this scoring, the Hasplet scoring, with zero points, the risk of a major bleed are 0.9 to 1.13 per year, which is low risk. And up to two points, the anticoagulation can be considered, though the risk is moderate, which means two per 100 patient years. Three and above a high risk for a major bleed, 5.8%, and alternatives to anticoagulation should be considered. Scores greater than five are rare to determine, but the risk for a major bleed is likely more than 10%. So Jessica, it makes sense that if the CHADS-VASC2 score is much greater than the Hasblood score, one should anticoagulate. Besides, when addressing this issue, one must keep in mind that the chances of thrombotic or embolic events is much higher than the chances of bleeding. We know the names of the anticoagulants. Could you briefly summarize these and help us determine which one to use under which conditions? Yes, absolutely. So one of the older anticoagulants, uh, which we still on occasion use, is warfarin, which happens to be inexpensive. We also have years of experience with it, and it can be reversed if the patient is over-anticoagulated. The newer ones are called DOACs, which stands for direct oral anticoagulants, implying that unlike warfarin, which works on factors 2, 7, 9, and 10, the DOACs act 
or reverse usually one component only along the coagulation pathway, such as be it factor 2 or factor 10. Some DOACs have better efficacy and superiority when compared to warfarin, while the others are not inferior to warfarin. The DOACs cause less bleeding when compared to warfarin, are more convenient because there are no food interactions and have less drug interactions. Their half-lives are about 10 to 12 hours. The disadvantages of warfarin are food interactions with foods containing vitamin K. There are drug interactions through the cytochrome P450 system. The half-life can range from 20 to 60 hours, and the problematic frequent INR measurements that go with warfarin can be cumbersome. The disadvantages of the DOACs are we do not have enough experience, especially with saddle embolism, heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, and folks who have chronic kidney disease. There can be drug interactions with the P-glycoprotein metabolized medications, especially with dabigatrin, phenytoin, carbamazepine, etc. They are expensive when compared to warfarin. What would be the instances where one would use warfarin? One can only use warfarin and not DOAX for valvular atrial fibrillation, especially secondary to moderate to severe mitral stenosis. Also, one can use warfarin if a person has a mechanical heart valve where one cannot use the CHAZVAS-2 scoring and warfarin is recommended. Also, in instances where one visualizes a thrombus in the atria or the ventricle. For all others, DOAX can be used. Now, there are several DOACs. Which one do we choose? Yeah, that's a good question, Jessica. You see, there are no head-to-head -head studies comparing all DOACs. But if I had to pick one, it would be Epixaban called Eliquis. In a meta-analysis published in 2017, ACP Epixaban or Eliquis had the best combination of reducing strokes, reducing mortality, less bleeding, and cost effectiveness, and it can be used in advanced renal failure as well. What if the patient has significant bleeding while on anticoagulants? Well, if it is because of warfarin, uh, you can reverse that, or you can try and reverse it with vitamin K or fresh frozen plasma, or with prothrombin complex concentrates. If the bleeding is because of DOACs, remember the mnemonic PAP, prothrombin complex concentrates, adnexinate alpha, or praxibind, especially if the person is on dabigatrin. We go through dilemmas where a person is on an anticoagulant and needs a procedure conducted, and we are uncertain whether we ought to bridge with unfractionated heparin or low molecular weight heparin to reduce the chances of clotting while also wondering about excessive bleeding during the procedure. How should one proceed? The answer to this dilemma, Jessica, is... If it is an emergent procedure and there is little time to think since a life is at stake, one proceeds with the emergency, acknowledging the risks involved. On the contrary, if it is an elective procedure, one can once again reason by doing the CHADS-VASC-2 scoring to see what the risks are of the patient developing a clot versus the risk of bleeding by using the Hasbled mnemonic. Remember, Studies have revealed that bridging has more risks of thromboembolic phenomenon. What do you mean by the risk of thromboembolism and what are the determinants, especially for high risk? Yeah, that's a great question again, Jessica. 
So high risk of a thromboembolic risk is defined as greater than 10% events per year. 5 to 10% events per year is intermediate risk, whereas low risk is less than 5% event per year. There's a mnemonic that I have created so that I can remember, and this is for high-risk issues which certainly necessitate bridging with unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin, and the mnemonic is STREAM. It's something like one must bridge over this turbulent stream, where S stands for stroke, recent TIA or a stroke in the past three to six months, T for severe thrombophilia, examples being deficiencies of protein C or S or antithrombin 3, one has antiphospholipid antibodies, multiple abnormalities. R is for rheumatic valvular heart disease. E is for embolism or VTE in the last three months. A is for atrial fibrillation with a CHAZVAS score of five or six. And M is for mechanical heart valve, which is any mitral valve prosthesis or any cage ball or tilting disc in the aortic valve area. With this high risk, the patient must be bridged with unfractionated or low molecular weight heparin. On the contrary, one should not bridge if the scores of CHADS-VAS2 is low, such as 2 or less. For the in-between, which means between 2 and 5, one should determine the risk of thromboembolic phenomenon versus bleeding risk and make a calculated, cohesive decision with the patient while doing this. The next question is rate control versus rhythm control in folks with atrial fibrillation. Which does one choose? Yeah, the the pendulum has been swinging. When I was training a million years ago, we focused on rhythm control. And this then was followed by studies which revealed rate control was better. And so we switched to controlling the ventricular rate. And now recently, Again, in certain scenarios, we're going back to rhythm control, though the new trials are disparate. Factors to consider when contemplating rhythm control, the earlier on one does it in atrial fibrillation, the better. It can also certainly be considered in cases of heart failure with reduced ejective fraction and with patients who have symptomatic, significant palpitations. Whenever rhythm is a consideration, one considers radiofrequency ablation versus antiarrhythmics. We have good experience controlling the ventricular rate in atrial fibrillation by using beta blockers or digoxin or the non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers such as cardism and verapamil. Could you talk a little bit about rhythm control? Yeah, sure. So early catheter ablation in atrial fibrillation led to improved quality of life, better exercise tolerance, and less palpitations. Studies such as Cabana, Castle, atrial fibrillation, and the ease studies suggest perhaps better mortality and stroke outcomes with rhythm control. Off note, remember, we still need to anticoagulate two months after ablation. And additionally, this might be extended based on the patient's CHADS-VASC2 scoring. Some of the medications for rhythm control are the class 1C, flaconide and propofenone, Class 3, imiodarone, dronedronone, sotolol, dofetilide, and abulatide. Verna Calent is available in Europe only, which is a sodium and a potassium channel blocker. So on the class 1 antiarrhythmics, which are the sodium channel blockers, flaconide and propofenone, flaconide 
should be avoided in structural heart disease involving left ventricular hypertrophy and should always be used with a beta blocker. Propofenone should be avoided in NYHA 3 and 4 heart failures along with patients who have hypotension. Imiodarone, which is a sodium, potassium, calcium channel blocker and a beta blocker, the half-life is an issue. It's 60 days. It has minimal QTC effects. Its side effects include, you know, involving the thyroid, the lungs, the cornea, and the liver. Dronedrone, which is a modified imiodarone, is not as good as imiodarone. The half-life, though, is less than a day. Mortality is increased with stroke, heart failure, and atrial fibrillation. Dofetilite is the oral form, and abulatide is the intravenous form. Dofetilite needs a special certification, which must be initiated in the hospital for closed QT monitoring. Abulatide can cause prolonged QT and torsades, though it can be used concomitantly with electrical cardioversion. Could you tell us about the Watchman's procedure and where does it have a role? The PREVAIL study recommends warfarin aspirin for 45 days post-procedure, following which a TEE needs to be done. If the left atrial appendage opening or the LAAC is less than 5 millimeters, warfarin can be discontinued. But Plavix and aspirin need to be instituted for six months. And after six months, the Plavix can be stopped and aspirin has to be continued indefinitely. The Watchman meta-analysis, it was non-inferior to warfarin for composite endpoint, which is stroke and embolization as well as death. Of note, ischemic CVA is worse with the device. Hemorrhagic CVA is worse with warfarin. So with the above, according to the PROTECT atrial fibrillation trial, with the procedure, there was an 85% relative risk reduction in hemorrhagic stroke, 60% in cardiovascular mortality, 1.4% absolute annual risk reduction in cardiovascular mortality, and a 34% relative risk reduction mortality, and 1.6% absolute reduction all-cause mortality. Are there any problems with the Watchman's procedure? When should one consider the Watchman's procedure? Yeah, there are problems with the procedure, such as concerns for you know, developing a, part, a pericardial effusion requiring intervention in 5%, ischemic stroke in 1.1%, uh, 1%, 1% can develop need a device removal due to a device migration, and 2.2% led to cardiovascular surgery. And confounding, there's also this confounding use of Plavix for seven days prior to the procedure. Making it simple, Jessica, the above procedure can be done in folks who cannot or will not take warfarin, though 45 days of warfarin is required after the procedure. All right, and we made it to the case presentations. We've got six case presentations that we'd like to go over with you, Dr. Harrison. Our first case scenario, a healthy 40-year-old presented with palpitations for two days and was found to have fibbing. What do you do, Dr. Harrison? Okay, so a 40-year-old presents with palpitations for two days and is found to have atrial fibrillation. Okay, so if confirmed that this is less than 48 hours, the CHADS-VAS2 score is less than 2. This patient does not need to be anticoagulated and therefore can be cardioverted. Next one, a 65-year-old with diabetes, hypertension, coronary artery disease, heart failure with low EF and atrial fibrillation for years on maximum tolerated beta blockers and on an anticoagulant presents 
with disabling palpitations, what do you do? Okay, 65, has diabetes, hypertension, CAD, heart failure, one, two, three. So this patient, Jessica, has a CHADS VASC2 score of four and has disabling palpitations with heart failure and reduced ejection fraction. This patient might benefit from rhythm control given the disabling palpitations. A 50-year-old with hypertension, sleep apnea, atrial fibrillation, on a DOAC requires an elective endoscopy in five days to evaluate guaiac-positive stools. Will you bridge? So 50-year-old with hypertension, has atrial fibrillation, and is on a DOAC. This patient's uh, CHADSVAS score is one. Therefore, he does not require bridging. No. All right. It's like rapid fire here, Dr. Harrison. Yeah. 75-year-old with chronic atrial fibrillation on warfarin presents with multiple evaluations with endoscopies for anemia and atrial venous malformations discovered in the small bowel. What will you do? Okay. 75-year-old with chronic atrial fibrillation on warfarin with multiple evaluations for anemia is found to have arterial venous malformations in the small bowel, what will you do? So long-term warfarin and AVMs found repeatedly in endoscopies when evaluating for anemia and guac-positive stools, this patient might benefit from a watchman's procedure. At the most, he's going to require, you know, as we mentioned, six weeks of warfarin, but after that, hopefully, you know, he'll be off warfarin and his black positive stools and his anemia should resolve. Next one, a 65-year-old with diabetes, hypertension, and a history of transient ischemic attack three months ago, who also has peripheral artery disease, presents with shortness of breath for two weeks and is found to have atrial fibrillation. What will you do, Dr. Harrison? Okay, Jessica. So this patient presents with new onset atrial fibrillation. Even though his EKG may not have revealed ischemic changes, this patient has several risk factors for coronary artery disease. Uh, he is 65, he has diabetes, hypertension, he's had a uh, TIA three months ago, and he also has a PAD. So, so coronary artery disease will need to be evaluated in this patient, but he will need an echo as well as with a CHADSVAS score, which I think is six in this case he will need to be anticoagulated as well. Last one here in our rapid fire case presentations, a 25 year old presents with gradually progressing shortness of breath on auscultation. She has an opening snap and a mid diastolic rumble at the apex. An EKG reveals atrial fibrillation. What will you do? So uh, this patient uh, seemingly has mitral stenosis and along with atrial fibrillation, she will require an echocardiogram and will need to be placed on warfarin, besides, of course, considering mitral valve repair. Well, that concludes our episode for today, Dr. Harrison. Thank you so much for walking us through all of that and for even being a good sport during our rapid fire round there of case presentations. I think we learned a lot and probably reinforced some things we already knew. How do you feel about the episode today? Was it a good one? I think so. We'll leave it to the listeners to see if they feel, you know, it's worthwhile. But yes. thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you. Well, tune in next time for our next episode of Multidisciplinary Dialogue, Clinical Rounds, and Case Reviews. Have a great day.